Lord, as we look in your word this morning, help each one of us to be encouraged at the kind of love uh, you have, uh, at the kind of love you display, uh, the fact that, uh, unlike many other things, you say that you are love. Help us to see that more clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If I told you that I loved my daughters singly or collectively because they only did those things that I approved of, you'd probably think me little, self-serving. You'd call it conditional love. What do you mean you only love your daughters if they do what you please? And if I was asking the question and you were thinking about me, it'd probably be an appropriate um, conclusion that, you know, what a loser. You know, this guy that doesn't love his kids the way he should. It is interesting, though, in the passage we're in this morning, that uh, the father loves the son because of what the son does. And uh, hopefully this will challenge us uh, a little bit as we look in this this morning. We're back in John 10 this morning. We finished Malachi and the whole series about living counterculture last week. We're in John 10 again this morning. I had to scratch my head to remember when we were in John 10 last, in John at all. And it was in November before Thanksgiving. So we've seen Christmas and we've seen the beginning of the new year and we're catching up back to where we left off in November. John 10. Just to bring you up to speed, do you remember in John 9, Jesus healed a man that had been born blind and he did it on the Sabbath and that ran into trouble and the religious leaders, they call in the guy and his parents and the end of all that is they kick the guy out of fellowship. You know, if someone's put out a fellowship in the church today, that's what they did to this guy. He was healed by Jesus, and they put him out of the synagogue and the temple. That was their reply. And then Jesus hooked up with him afterwards, and they had a conversation. And this conversation led to a conversation about leadership. Here, this poor guy that was blind and healed is put out by the leaders, the shepherds of Israel. In fact, we looked at shepherding in the history of Israel and shepherding in general as we looked at the first 16 verses of John 10. The famous passage, the Good Shepherd Discourse, if you read commentaries, in which Jesus described himself as the Good Shepherd. This is part of that same discussion. It just takes a little twist. We're only in verses 17 to 21 this morning. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Look at verse 17. And ask yourself the question, why does the Father love the Son? Verse 17, the Father loves Jesus because he lays down his life. Verse 18 says, this commandment, this act of obedience is based on God's commandment. He said in verse 18, this commandment I received from my Father. The Father loves Jesus because Jesus is in complete agreement with the will of his Father. This sounds self-serving on the, the face of it, and I hope as we develop this Um, maybe we can see into the Trinity a little better, and I think that this is an encouragement in the end. But this says the Father loves the Son because the Son does what the Father wants Him to. 
Again, if you're thinking of a human parent, it sounds pretty bad, but related to the Trinity, this is entirely positive. Do you remember back in John 5, we spoke about this kind of loving, honoring relationship God the Father has with God the Son in John 5. Do you remember there, Jesus healed the guy that was lame at the pool of Bethesda, healed him on the Sabbath too. And Jesus said this in John 5, he healed on the Sabbath, so this always raises the question, you're breaking the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? This work of healing is a work. You shouldn't do it on the Sabbath. Jesus defends himself, and this is what he said in John 5, 19. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. The Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. Verses 22 and 23, the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. God the Father loves Jesus, God the Son, and he loves to heap honor upon him. And that is behind the Father's commandments to the Son, and it's behind the statement, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. On one hand, when we think of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, we think of passages like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son so that we'd be saved. We think of it from our perspective, which is a good place to start. We say God loved us, so he sent Jesus to die for our sins so we could be saved. This is appropriate. It's theologically accurate and it's helpful. But that's not all that was going on. The Father's command to the Son related to the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection was so the Father could heap more honor on his Son. Do you see this? We get the benefit of this loving relationship, but we're not the sole object of it. If all we think about is John 3.16, it's sort of a man-centered action, God the Father saving man. And, and this is good. I don't mean to diminish this at all. We'd only be here today because the Father sent the Son. We have no hope apart from this. But there's another side to this. And you, if you don't get that, passages like John 10.17 don't make much sense. God the Father is committed in his love to his Son to find ways to honor him. The Father is looking for ways to honor his Son. And the Son is looking for ways to honor his Father. So in this light, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection were God the Father's way of putting Jesus through a process at the end of which he could heap more honor on him than if Jesus had not come to the earth and died for our sins and risen from the dead. From this perspective, the whole story of, of salvation is the desire of the Father to heap more honor upon His Son. Think about this for a minute. Psalm 2, one of the great Messianic Psalms. In fact, it's quoted later in a, in a passage we'll look at briefly in Acts. But Psalm 2, do you remember what the picture is? I was thinking of this in our Sunday school class. The picture is little man on the earth shakes his fist at heaven and says, God, we're casting off your shackles. We're not going to do what you want us to do. We're casting off your rule. And then do you remember what God's response is? Psalm 2, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Little man, the ant on the earth, shakes his little fist at God, and God in heaven looks down and laughs. 
He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath. And this is what he says. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Man raises his fist to God and says, oh, we won't serve. God says, too late. I've already, I've already established and appointed my king. And this is what he says. You're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. God the Father says to God the Son in Psalm 2, I'm going to make the nations your inheritance. I'm going to give you the divine scepter of the king, and you're going to rule the world we created. The Father heaping honor upon the Son. But remember in context, Psalm 2, the coming king has to be a descendant of David. Of course, this is all in God's eternal counsel. It's not as if he's making up it as he goes, but these are tied together. For God to honor his son in this sense, the son has to become one of us. He's got to come down to earth in the incarnation. Listen to Paul's words about the son in Colossians 1. Colossians 1 is, in the New Testament, one of the preeminent passages that just speaks of the glory of Jesus Christ. At verse 16... By him, by the Son, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Think of this. Creation itself was a way for God the Father to honor God the Son. All things were created for Christ. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He has ultimate supremacy. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Of course, he's become the head through crucifixion and resurrection. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That is the resurrection. Why? So that in everything he might have the supremacy. In God the Father's mind and counsel, creation and redemption were ways to honor his son, to display his love for his son. In Revelation 5, one of the great passages in the New Testament that just show worship, and this is a little, uh, not a long passage, a few verses. Remember in chapters 4 and 5, John leaves earth. Chapter 3 goes up to heaven, chapters 4 and 5, and he sees the business of heaven. And this is the business of heaven. These multitudes in heaven sing a new song and they sing to the Lamb, the one who could come and open God's scroll, the the revelation of God, of man's future. And this is what they say, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. The Lamb of God was worthy because he was slain. This is what uh, Jesus is speaking here. This reason the Father loves me, I lay down my life so that I can take it again. Heaven worships Jesus because he was the slain one, because he obeyed his Father. Verse 11, I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. This is is a theater, guys, that we'll be in one day. 10,000 times 10,000. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now remember, 
Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, He would be worshipped no matter what He did or didn't do because of who He is. As the second member of the Trinity, Jesus is God and would be worshipped as God, period. But Jesus couldn't be worshipped as the Lamb who was slain unless He came down to the earth. This is what I mean. The Father's creating ways to show love and to heap honor upon His Son. So the creation of the world you and I inhabit, the redemption that we embrace, on one hand, it's also that the Father could say to the Son, I love you and I'm going to heap as much honor on you as I can. I'm going to think of ways to show you honor because I love you. The Father has always intended to honor the Son. So when Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life, it sounds conditional, but it's not. The Father is choosing to honor the Son, and the Son is cooperating with the Father's desire to honor Him. This is a good thing. The thought in the passage is not that the Father only loves Jesus, the Son, because of what He does, but it touches on this theme that they are cooperating. The Father's love continues to be expressed because He and His Son are in constant communication, ongoing agreement, unity and purpose, with the Father initiating the action and the Son fulfilling it. You know, in the order of the Trinity, uh, co-equal as deity, the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, each God, fully God, um, each though with a, a, a difference of role and function. The Father, this is true, you read through the Scriptures, just do a study if you want on your own. The Father initiates the action of the Trinity. The Father initiates. The Son fulfills that initiated action or thought, and the Son does so through the energy, agency, power of the Spirit. This is the way the Trinity works. So there's a functional difference or distinction between the members of the Trinity. But within that functional difference even, there is this purpose for each member of the Trinity to honor the others. Here we're just talking about the Father and the Son, but this extends to the Spirit as well. By the way, the Spirit in my mind is like the the mother of a family. I won't go into this very far, but you know Ephesians 4 says every family derives its name from God. Every family in, in the Greek and Hebrews or excuse me, in Ephesians 4 is Patria. The family's called by the Father's name. You know, when a woman gets married, she takes her husband's name. It's the man who identifies the family. That's biblical. That's Call it patriarchal if you want, chauvinistic if you want. It doesn't matter. That's God's design, Old and New Testament. So the family derives its nature and character by, it, by the father. Here's the mother, typically, kind of in the background. She's the one who loves to honor her husband. She's the one who serves her children. And in that sense, she does not take the preeminent role. But the children love their mother. And the husband loves the mother. And I'm convinced, this isn't feminist theology, that this is the kind of role you see in the Trinity. The family on earth represents the Trinity in heaven. We're specifically dealing with the Father and the Son here this morning, but within their different functions, they seek to love and honor each other. Jesus' incarnation was about our salvation, but it was also so the Father could heap honor upon the Son. And Jesus' crucifixion was about our salvation, but it was also so the Father could heap honor on the Son. And Jesus' resurrection was about our salvation, but it was so that the Father could heap honor on the Son.
It doesn't stop with the Son. You know if you've read 1 Corinthians 15 how this thing ends. The Father goes to all these extremes, maybe we could say, to honor his Son, and then the Son does what in the end? He turns around and honors his Father. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, comes the end when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority, that is, all opposition to God, when the Son has, And then verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one, the Father, who subjected all things to him, the Son, so that God may be all and in all. The Father and the Son going out of their way, so to speak, to show honor to each other. It's not a case of conditional love when Jesus says, the Father loves me because... But it's the Father heaping honor and displaying love for the Son. It's the Son displaying love and honor for the Father. In this context, it's important to hear what Jesus says in these verses about uh, his life and laying it down. I had a conversation years ago with an old schoolmate of Kathy's and mine, and we were talking about the gospel, and, and our lives had taken very divergent paths. We'd become Christians and sharing about Christ and Jesus. And this was this gal's take. She says, uh, Jesus was a misunderstood prophet, a a visionary before his time. And so they crucified him. And you'll hear Christians say stuff like this. And you need to understand nothing is further from the truth. Nothing is further from the truth. Jesus is not, even as the lamb being offered, Jesus is not a victim. Remember a passage in Isaiah says the lamb, he's silent before shears. And you might look at a passage like that and say, oh, the poor lamb, you know. The poor lamb, he can't do anything else and they don't bleed out. That's just the nature of the lamb and so the lamb's a victim. But nothing is further from the truth when the lamb is Jesus, the Son of God. Nothing is further from the truth. He'd said earlier in John 10, verses 11 and 15, he said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The picture here is literally Jesus takes his life and Jesus sets it down. He's talking about his death. He takes it and he sets it down. And then in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. It's important to understand this, especially in the context of this passage about the Father and the Son honoring each other. In Matthew 26, do you remember when uh, they're at the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter whoops out the sword to save his friend, you know, and cuts off the poor guy's ear? Do you remember what Jesus' response is? Matthew 26, 53, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Pete, get a grip. If I needed help, it wouldn't be from you. And I'd just call, and the armies of heaven would come in, they just wipe these guys out. Not a problem. Jesus is in control. He's not a victim. John 18, a little different spin. In John's gospel, he tells us the same thing. They've come out, you know, to get Jesus in the garden that night. And they say, um, Jesus says, who do you seek? And they, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He answers and says, I am, and you guys know in Greek, I am is, is uh, Yahweh, the eternally existent name for God, I am. 
And Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And when he said, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Jesus is not a victim. When the crowds and the officers and the swords and the spears come out to arrest him, he just, he just lets out this, this teeny weeny little bit of who he is when he just says his name and that those who come out to arrest him fall over. He's not a victim. He has his life in firm control. He says he lays it down. We've talked about chiasm before, but if you look in verses 17 and 18, you guys remember what chiasm is? Chi, the Greek letter that looks like X, key. Chiasm means that we work to a middle point, and the middle point is the thing. So we work to the middle point, we digress from the middle point, and that middle point we know that's the thing we need to get. Look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus says in 17, the Father loves me. He says at the end of 18, this commandment I receive from my Father. He says in 17, I lay down my life that I may take it again. He says in 18, I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to take it up again. And the beginning of 18 is the middle. No one takes it from me. When it comes to the arrest, the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. In fact, it's interesting if you remember, even on the cross, Jesus is the one who says, it is finished. And at that moment, he lays down his life. If Jesus had decided to live through the crucifixion, he could have done so. He had power to lay his life down. No one took it from him. And remember, in the context of the passage, this is important. If Jesus is a victim... The will of the Father to honor the Son is at the capricious whim of humans like you and I. But it's not. Because Jesus is in concert with his Father to lay his life down so the Father can honor him. And humans are involved in the process, but the humans are not in control. God the Son is in full control. If you read in Acts 4, the early church understood this clearly. And thinking back to Psalm 2 when the church began to experience some persecution and they're collected together and they're praying, this is what they say in Acts 4, 27. This is a reference to Psalm 2. Truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, God's chosen one, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The early church looks back at Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, and they say, God, we understand they were just doing whatever your hand and your purpose that was predestined to occur. No victimization, God the Father anointing, choosing God the Son to fulfill a mission so the Father could honor him. There's no victim here. Jesus willingly had the power to lay down his life and he had the power to take it up again. That's not true for you and I, is it? We don't know the day of our death. Ecclesiastes says, 8.8, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. You and I don't have authority over the day of our death. Job says in the midst of his suffering in Job 3, verses 20 and 21, Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul, those who long for death, but there is none? In his suffering, Job wished he could die, but he didn't have authority to lay his life down as Jesus did. Or in Revelation 9, 6, at a future time when God's judging the earth and times are hard, 
like for Job, and men would choose death rather than the suffering of life, it says, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. In contrast to you and I, or Job, or men in the future, Jesus says of his life, I have authority. I can lay it down. I can take it up. But no one takes it from me. He's the only one who could say that. When you think of applications on a passage like this, um, and what do I do with this does come to mind. A good friend Marvin DeGroff would always say, you know, so what? You've got to answer the so what question. You hear something new, so what? The first so what, uh, I'm sometimes short on application because I love to learn anyway. So, but in my mind, the beginning of the so what answer to this passage is, in my mind, this passage gives you some sense of the kind or the quality of the love the Father and the Son have for each other. I marvel at this. You know, in our relationships with each other, we cut each other short sometimes. We become self-serving even when we're committed to love a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend or, or, or an enemy. Uh, we may do it well or, or not very well. Most of the time, maybe we'd say we don't do it very well. Here's a demonstration of a love that bends over backwards, so to speak, consistently so, to honor another. So I think the first thing when we read a passage like this and understand the kind of relationship the Father and the Son have, it's to marvel at this accommodating, uh, maybe not self-deprecating, but something like that, where we're preferring someone else over ourselves. And there's a, this would be good anyway. If all you did was you could see this from a distance, like somebody looking in someone else's window, you know, in their house, and you see them sitting around the table, it looks like a great place to be. If that's all you saw, that'd be good, because it'd still be edifying, it'd be encouraging, it would still be positive, it would reflect a positive thing that would be good to see and good to know. But, you know, the wonder here is that for a Christian, for those who place their faith in Christ, this is the life that you're invited in to share. This is the family, the dinner table, so to speak, that you're invited into. So that when you see the kind of love the Father has for the Son, and then you remember that God calls you His sons and His daughters, it gives you this little bit of inkling that God hasn't just saved me, but the God who bends over backwards to honor His Son, that's the God who now loves me, has made me and you His children, and that's the same attitude He has towards us. It's a little different because we're not deity. And we're not eternal. So the relationship's a little different, but the attitude is the same. The attitude is the same. That you and I are brought into a family relationship that's so loving that the members bend over backwards to honor each other. So you and I are welcomed into a family in which we not only get to see the display of the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, but we're called in to participate in the same thing. We won't just worship the Son there in heaven with the angels, but God will be pouring out His love on us too through eternity. So we've been welcomed into this loving, thriving relationship. The second thing on the so what question in my mind has to do with the thought that we emulate Christ in His pattern of saying to the Father, Father, I understand that everything you want for my life is good. 
And remember back in Hebrews 12 when we looked at this a couple weeks ago, I think. Jesus goes through a tough life on earth, a difficult life by any, any way you look at it, and then becomes sin for us on the cross. But it said, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, Jesus the Son knew that as tough as it was, the Father was in this, the Father had willed this and had commanded it, because in the end it would be worth it. There would be this future joy that Jesus would have that he wouldn't have had had the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection not taken place. So there was this future expectation of joy because he knew his Father's mind towards him. You and I need to emulate Christ with that same thought that whatever goes on in our life, and sometimes it's tough and sometimes it's pleasant, but whatever's going on in our life, we need to have that same mentality that we make it our aim to honor our Father through obedience. Honor our Father through obedience. Now, let me say two things under this heading. The first is to use this, this term grace. Grace. If I tell you to emulate Christ in obedience... If there's any way in which your mind hears that as saying God loves you conditionally, uh, you need to dispel that. Uh, Salvation is a loving God removing the impediment, which is sin, so that he's free to pour out his love on his creatures again, creatures who have now become his children. So the first thing, if you're hearing emulate and anything conditional pops in your mind, first understand this. You and I are saved by God's grace. He pours it out on us. He saves us in Christ so that he can pour out more love and grace on us. God will never love you more or less no matter what you do. You can't work up any more love from God than you've already got right now. You can't be loved by God any less by what you do or fail to do in the future. By God's grace, the impediment which was sin has been removed so the Father's free to express his love towards us. That's all he has for us. In the movie Jerry Maguire, do you remember one of the great lines in Jerry Maguire? If you watch it, watch the cleaned up version because of the language. He says to his brother, I ain't got nothing but love for you. To his brother who's kind of always telling him he's too small to play football. His response is, I ain't got nothing but love for you. Well, see, that's what the Father has for us now. The impediment is gone, so the Father's free to love us. So if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, if if you've believed in Him in the language of John's Gospel, all God has for you is love. That's all He's got. No wrath, no anger. All He's got is love. He won't love you more. He won't love you less. If you are the most obedient child or the least obedient child, His love for you is, in this sense, unconditional. You can't blow it. You're loved by your Father you're going to live with him forever. You're good to go. So, we start from grace. Then we go to, though, this thought of rewards. Now, remember, the Father institutes this plan by which Jesus comes into the world and lives and preaches and dies so that the Father can honor him, can reward him, can bless him in a way keep honor on him in a way that he couldn't have had Jesus not gone through this process. Well, guys, I'm telling you, this is exactly the same thing we're in today. See, the the Father loved the Son. Absolutely. God loves you and I. Absolutely. 
But the father had a plan by which he could heap honor or reward upon his son. And guess what? That's exactly the same plan God has for you and I today. Let me read Ephesians 2. I love this passage because it so perfectly unites both of these concepts, grace and reward. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 10, Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, if, if this is all you heard, it'd be great. You've been saved by God's grace through faith, not of works. It's His gift to you. He's showing His surpassing riches and grace towards you forever. It's all about God's grace. But read verse 10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the same thing. You and I are saved by grace. He lavishes His love on us in salvation. And then he turns around, no less than he did his son, and he says, I've got a game plan for you. And parts of it will be tough. But you need to understand that there's a joy and there's a future joy and reward that I'm going to be able to give you because of the works I give you to do right here and right now. And you're going to be part of my program. And when you do the things I've set out for you to do, I will be able to heap honor in the way of rewards on you in the future that I wouldn't be able to otherwise. So when you read those judgment passages in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, where Christians stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the thought here is not that Jesus is going to whack us for the disobedient acts we committed in our life, but he puts the fire to our life, he says, and the stuff that's not good, it's that chaff, it burns up. But see, the things that are left... They're the works God prepared for us to walk in that we walked in. So he's really given us these opportunities by which he can heap honor and lavish his love on us in the future. No different than Jesus. The works are different. The stakes are different. We don't have salvation resting on our shoulders. That was his unique role. But I love this thought that when you see the love of the Father for the Son, you're seeing the love that you've been called into. And that no less than Jesus, God has appointed works to walk in, to do, to accomplish, so that in eternity He can reward you and heap honor upon you just as He did the Son of His love, His Son Jesus. This is exciting for me, and this helps um, when times are bad, and I'm, I'm uh, challenged to continue to believe that somehow God really has good out of difficult times. I can remember this. No, my father is going out of his way so that he can heap honor on me in the future. There's no question about God's love or his attitude or his heart towards me. And he's got things prepared just for me. You know, this is, this is encouraging to me too. No one else can take your place. You know, whatever... Wherever you live geographically, whatever neighborhood you live, whatever school you go to, whoever your friends are, whoever your enemies are, 
You occupy a unique role in all the world, in all the universe. And in your unique role, through you, God has determined things He wants just you to do. You're the one. Things just for you to do. And at the end of your life, He's going to say, Well done. Let me honor you for those things you did out of love for me. Just like the Son. This is encouraging. I can live with this. And it also makes me think, you know, we love each other poorly in this land of shadows, the valley of death we live in here on the earth. But one day we'll be in this relationship with no barriers in which there's no condition to the love you get to express or receive. And, you know, there won't be any of those harsh words you speak in anger or that you hear and get your feeling. None of this will be taking place. We'll all be around the family table, so to speak, and we'll all be kind of bending over backwards, so to speak, to honor each other because that's what the Father's doing in His family, and that's the family life we're called into. This is something that I can look forward to. It's something we can all look forward to. So Jesus says, the Father loves me because I'm doing exactly what He wants. And I know that the Father's doing this because he wants to honor me. And after he's honored me, I'm going to turn around and honor him. And they're in this circle of love and honor, and that's what we're called into. When you hear people disparage Christianity or God as some grubbing creature who needs the worship or praise of ants like you and I, it's, that's just a lie. It's just a, you know, it's the type of thing that Satan says, who's rejected this kind of love. But for you and I, we're called into this circle of love and honor. That's the life we've been redeemed for. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that you love your Son. Lord Jesus, thanks that you love your Father. Thanks that in your wise counsels, Lord, you not only created the earth we inhabit today, but you prepared for our salvation and deliverance. Lord, in a way that you can honor your Son and in a way that benefits us. And Father, I thank you that in a future day we will see you with no veil in between. And we, um, Lord, what a day to sit around your table. What a day to be present as you honor your Son. The Son honors you and as we are welcomed into this loving, honoring relationship. Father, I pray that this concept and this knowledge and this truth would empower us to live gracious, carefree lives of love towards you and love towards others. Lord, thanks that we really are more than conquerors because of your love for us and your love for your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.